Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip comes from episode number 373, so reasonably recent, with Jeremy Shepard and Dana Aga-Newman. So we discuss all things about maximizing jumping and landing performance. So in this clip, we have a little chat around variation, we have a little chat around programming, exercise selection, etc. But just before we do dive into this episode with Jeremy and Dana, I want to say a big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. So if you're looking for a free solution to collect, analyze, and visualize data to present to coaches, look no further than Rock Daisy's AMS Lite. Find out more at rockdaisy.com. It may sound trivial, but I'd love to get your thoughts on just the process that you would go through when choosing an exercise. I know that's a pretty big question, but I'll come to you first, Dana. Um, what would be the process for you when you're first starting out and it might be in reverse, so we're going to the end, that actually putting the exercise on the sheet. But if love to, I'd love to get your um, your, your take and your Yeah, so I work with uh, diving as well and wide variety of ages and uh, training ages with that population. So the youngest divers I'd get in the weight room at 12, 13 years old. Uh, my oldest diver who was in Tokyo was 27. And so very different thought processes depending on the levels of athletes. Initially, it all comes down to teaching them a wide variety of movements in the gym, teaching them to land properly. Um, and it's all about, you know, teaching those skills, maximizing training days. Um, but it, it, everything is, you know, skill, skill, skill. With a higher level athlete, uh, it comes down to the assessment, driving the exercise selection. Uh, so the tests I will do with athletes, I'll do a loaded jump profile. I'll do an isometric mid-thigh pull. Um, I'll do a counter-movement jump. And my low jump profile is uh, squat jumps. Uh, and then I'll also do a depth jump profile. And from those tests there, I choose out my variety of exercises along with a conversation with the coach. Uh, what is he seeing technically and hope that I can address technically within the weight room? Because uh, there's some things that are really hard uh, to measure if you get stuck using that single tool um, that gives you nice, easy numbers to interpret. And so I think it's really important that you go back and, you know, look at that athlete qualitatively. How, even if you have an older athlete, have a discussion with the athlete. Um, you know, what do you feel the limiting factors to your performance are right now? Uh, and that will determine my, my selection of exercises. Um, initially, I was really big on doing the force velocity profile and, you know, gearing my higher level athletes training off the uh, force velocity profile and you know i was finding results exactly like you, you find in the research where everyone's jump heights improve initially uh, but after a while once they're optimal and, and divers got to optimal really quickly because they're doing a ton of jumping every day they're, they're training consistently in the weight room uh, what i ended up doing is biasing them you know to you know more force dominant in the off season and then I'd try to shift them to optimal. I'd, I'd use the force velocity profile more to sharpen the knife um, leading into competition. Um, because I found if I was just trying to keep them at optimal, I wasn't actually moving the, the needle at all. And so I'd really bias the training to strength. And then, you know, leading the competition, we do more velocity-based training to, to gear it towards optimal. Uh, the loaded jump profile, um, you know, if you find that you need to work on the elasticity of your athletes, the stretch tolerance of that athlete, um, you know, something I would also recommend where the athletes jump off a series of increasing heights. And uh, the key thing to, to note is the athletes should be experienced at uh, depth jumps um, because otherwise you may get some, some interesting results which may not align with what you see out there in the research. 
Um, but if they are, what you find is that the athlete will jump height will continue to increase as they drop from increasing heights up to a certain point, and then it will start decreasing again. And the question that Jared and I talk a lot about is like, should we be training at the optimal height? So where they're jumping the highest off the boxes, or are we better to train slightly at the deflection point where they're starting to come down again to increase their stretch tolerance. Um, for me in the off season, I will train at the deflection point and then lean into season, I'll train at that optimal. Uh, so where they're jumping the highest. Uh, I don't have any research to back that up. That's just what I've been doing. Uh, seems to be working. Um, Jerry, you want to tag in on that one? Because I know we've been chatting about that one a lot. <laughs> yeah, I do this. I do yeah. the same thing. <laughs> um, and you know, obviously, with uh, currently working in a context where um, where landing is so critical to mixing in heights beyond the deflection point and even well beyond the deflection point, but the idea is they're just they're actually just landing. Um, so they're doing, it, it appears that they're about to do a gigantic depth jump, but they just land and then mixing that in with deflection point jumps and then moving that in to, to optimal, um, where, where appropriate. Uh, but obviously we have, um, a lot of abuse that goes, uh, through the athlete's body from the sport itself. So you, you have to, you have to obviously be very targeted. So it's not like on mass, all the athletes are doing something even like that because, um, it's not whether we have a cranky ankle in the team, it's who and how many cranky ankles and cranky knees and cranky backs we have because, um, you know, they fall out of the sky and, and try to put their feet underneath them. And it doesn't always go that way. Would either of you ever train below that deflection point or would it always be at or above? I think yeah. I do. Um, okay. I use a different style jump. Uh, so I don't instruct them to jump as high as possible in those lower heights. So let's say the optimal jump height for them is, uh, is uh, let's say it's, they're fairly well trained in this and it's 40 centimeters. Um, having them do these, these uh, lower, lower heights where the point is to actually not necessarily optimize the impulse but to uh, basically get off the ground as quickly as possible. So it's a, a different style. And, and when I write that in the program, that's a drop jump versus a depth jump. Yeah. And uh, I, Dana, were you going to Yeah, I was that? just going to say, I, I never speak in absolutes because, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule. And I think a lot of the time when people are taking information from podcasts, it's like, oh, this is what this person does. But, you know, I'm, I think Jared would consider me a numbers guy. But I, I'm a big believer that the numbers should influence what you do. They shouldn't drive what you do. Um, and so, you know, you should always be putting a little bit of art into your training, um, you know, for yourself to try new things, um, also for the athletes. Yeah. It's a sneaky host getting you to say things that you don't want to say, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> So what you've what you've described there is what you say in the book as stretch tolerance assessment. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. One one thing that you mention in the book as well is around variation, and I've had a couple of people on who were big proponents of lots and lots of variation, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on why that potentially wouldn't be the case. Dana, I'm coming to you again. I'm throwing you under the no, bus. No, this, this is actually the biggest change to my training uh, probably over the last 10 years with athletes is I prescribe way less variation. Um, okay. And, and 
the programs run for a lot longer. Uh, so what I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the name Anatoly Bondarchuk, um, which he has a certain training program for throwers and I got interested in his training and you know I, I was working with a number of rugby athletes who were chronically injured and you know the, the typical training with you know variation uh, you know every four weeks the programs would be changing uh, it, it just wasn't working and so you know I really tried to simplify the program down to you know what are the key components and I sat back and you know I prescribed exercises which I could monitor the athletes improvements and it was interesting that athletes, you know, were improving in the speeds they can move these loads for, a, you know, after session, after session, after session. At one point, you know, I had a, these two athletes and they trained 28 days in a row and they were doing a three-day rotation of exercises and they were, you know, improving, improving, improving. And I've had a chance to trial this with other athletes over the last couple of years. And what I've noticed is, you know, athletes will continue to adapt to an exercise uh, you know, for much longer than what we typically initially learn as S and C's. Um, I have a rugby player that plays over in the UK, and uh, she actually uh, did 17 sessions leading into the Premier 15s final, um, and she was just repeating the same the same sessions. And I've got the tables of her improvements across different exercises, and just continued to improve. The interesting thing too is when you keep your training consistent. Um, you can really see the effect of outside stressors uh, and what they can uh, what they can do to the, the movement speeds and the quality of that athlete session. And so it's uh, it's a great uh, tool for that athletes to learn, you know, how their lifestyles impact their training. Now, you know, the criticism of this method, and I don't think it's for everyone, is it can be monotonous. Um, but the 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 caveat to that is, you know, if you're monitoring the athletes and, you know, I present the information in a real simple way so that they can actually see their improvement, it graphs itself. Nothing, nothing motivates athletes in my experience, like seeing their improvements. And so if they know it's working, uh, you know, they want to keep doing it. And so, you know, to go back to that rugby examples, you know, at the end of the Olympics, you know, we're starting up the next season. And I asked the girls, I was like, okay, we've got a year of consistent training, no injuries, no niggles. You know, do you guys want to keep doing this? And and they said yes. And that surprised me because I thought they'd want to get back to you know getting you know two days off a week, a day off a week. Um, but you know, they they could actually see the measurement measurable improvements. Now, very different. I think you always need to look at you know the the culture of the sport, the nature of that athlete, what drives them. Uh, it's not something I would use um, with every athlete. Um, but you know that I think we're missing out on some adaptation with athletes by you know adding variation uh, too often in the programming would that change depending i'll come to you for your opinion on that jeremy in, in a second but would that change based on the the experience of the athlete the training age of the athlete uh so i haven't done this with young athletes so i you know that's something to note uh it's typically experienced athletes who are you know highly motivated um the one thing I will note is there's different types of reactions you will see to certain type of exercises and also depending on the, the, um, the level of the athlete. So if it's a, on, someone who's just starting this program, novel exercise, you'll typically see a linear improvement in an exercise. Uh, then there's some athletes which you'll see kind of almost that super compensation where they start the new program, the performance drives into a hole for about four or five sessions, 
and then it comes out and it's pretty consistent. You'll see a, a small peak around that 12 session mark. Uh, so it's that number of set times they're hitting that exercise uh, that seems to be, you know, leading to those improvements. And then I apparently, and I've never run it out with athletes, but there's even a bigger peak, you know, around 40 sessions, 30 sessions. And, you know, someone like Derek Evely uh, would be the guy to talk to about this. But, um, you know, it, for me, simplifying programming allows me to understand, you know, what works, what doesn't work with athletes. Um, and so, you know, that's another reason why I've, I've really moved to less variation in my program. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pasty Performance Bite Size. So for anyone that wants to listen to the full episode with Jeremy and Dana, head over to sportsmyth.co and the episode is number 373. Big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today and look forward to chatting to you soon.